This is an ABC podcast. Hi, I'm Tom Switzer, and this is Between the Lines. Well, Anthony Albanese has completed an intense nine-day round of summiteering. First, the ASEAN summit, that was in Cambodia. Then the G20 in Bali. And finally, APEC in Thailand. Now, all this against the backdrop of more Ukrainian gains against Russia. Now, to get their insights into all this, the Xi-Biden meeting, the prospects for a thaw in Sino-Australian relations, the peace possibilities in Ukraine, to get a sense of all this, let's turn to two distinguished British strategic thinkers whom the Lowy Institute has brought out to Australia this month. Gideon Ruckman is the global affairs columnist at the Financial Times and author of The Age of the Strongmen, How the Cult of the Leader Threatens Democracy Around the World. He joins us from Sydney. Welcome back to the show, Gideon. Thanks. Good to be back. And Lawrence Freeman is Emeritus Professor of War Studies at King's College London. He's author of Command, The Politics of Military Operations from Korea to Ukraine. Lawrence is with me in Melbourne. Welcome to the program, Lawrence. Good to be with you. Now, Presidents Biden and Xi met face-to-face for the first time since Biden became president. They spoke privately for about three hours. Lawrence Freeman, should the world feel a safer place? I'm always a bit reluctant to say you feel safe just because two leaders have met, but I don't think they did any harm. Biden talked about putting a floor on relations. That is, they've been going downhill, but let's hold it to where uh, they've reached. You've got two leaders who both strengthened their position. Biden did better than expected in the midterms. Uh, Z dominated his party Congress. But Z's got some big issues with COVID and the economy and real estate and so on. So it may just be that that he's not too happy with the isolation in which he's managed to get himself and would at least want to calm relations for for the next year or so. And the situation in Taiwan did get very prickly between the US and China over the US Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit earlier this year. Gideon Ruckman, has that changed? Well, I think the underlying situation remains extremely tense. I mean, this has been a bone of contention for for decades, but the temperature's going up because she has made it clear that China isn't prepared to wait forever for what it regards as reunification. And if you talk to um, the Americans in Washington, military people are saying openly that China would be capable of invading within the next year. The head of the US Navy said that. Others have talked about three to four years. So the two sides are still openly talking about the possibility of a military clash over Taiwan. doesn't mean it's inevitable by any means, but it's a very, very tense situation. Okay, so we've had these meetings, Xi Biden, uh, Xi Albanese. uh, The media has breathlessly reported this represents a thaw in relations between China and Washington and China and Canberra. Uh, Lawrence Freeman, what's your sense of this? Is it really a thaw? I mean, you think about the Australian relationship. I know you've already addressed this Mm. with your response to Biden, but as you know, we in Australia have been in in the deep freeze uh, because of various policies that Canberra has implemented, foreign interference, uh, rejecting the Huawei bid into our 5G network, and then, of course, Canberra's call for an international inquiry into the COVID outbreak. A thaw in in Australia-China relations? That might be putting it too high, but they're talking, and which which is good. And a lot of this is up to Z. I mean, he's got he's got to decide how much of the sort of wolf warrior diplomacy that they've been following they're going to continue 
to follow. And I think he's also got to work out what he thinks about the experience that Russia has just had or is still having with Ukraine, which is a warning against trying big military operations about which you're pretty confident, which turn out very badly, and also about the problems of just being isolated internationally when you don't have any friends. So I, I think the Australian military as well as the American military are extremely cautious, very nervous. I think Xi is not going to suggest for one second that Taiwan uh, can go its own direction. But I think he needs time as well. So I, I wouldn't say it a, th a thought. I think that the, the, the idea of, of a flaw is, is a better idea. Okay. You, you just don't want things to deteriorate further. Let's see if we can then make them better. Gideon Ruckman, let me run this quote by you. This is the distinguished Australian columnist Peter Harcher in the Sydney Morning Herald. Quote, After all the rants and insults, the political freeze and the trade bans, the president of China brought his intimidation campaign of Australia to a politely meek end. And then Harcher goes on to say, we can now expect the remaining boycotts to drop away over the months ahead. This is a victory for Australia staring down the great power. Gideon Ruckman. Well, we'll see. You know, China may feel that it's kind of made its point. And, and he has a point in the sense that we've seen them do this with other countries, uh, with South Korea, for example, when the South Koreans annoyed the Chinese by deploying US missiles. There were, you know, consumer boycotts of South Korean goods and so on. And then after a couple of years, they kind of eased it off again. And that may be going through a similar ritual, if you like, with Australia. But I, I do think that relations will never get back to the way they were before. There's now a sort of a level of geopolitical tension. But also there's maybe a discovery of codependency because throughout all of this, you know, China may have stopped buying Australian wine, but they kept buying far more significantly Australian iron ore and Australia kept mm -hmm. selling it. Mm, absolutely right. Now, uh, Lawrence Friedman, I have to ask, uh, Donald Trump this week did announce that he would run again for president. There's a widespread view that Trump and, and American foreign policy sans Donald Trump uh, is in much better shape. But under Trump's watch, America did intensify this security and economic competition with China. The prospect of a Trump return to the White House. I think it's not as great as it was. He had a bad midterms. His hand-picked candidate, by and large, did worse than other Republican candidates. And there's a lot of anger now in the Republican Party that, uh, in a sense, they, they haven't got control of the Senate. And it's pretty knife-edge with the House of Representatives. And that's a lot because of Trump. So people who bent the knee to Trump before are, are, are less prepared to do that. So what he may do is is just uh, herald a lot of Republican infighting mm. uh, over, the, over the next couple of years. It's not inconceivable because of the nature of uh, the American system and the role of primaries that Trump could be the nominee again and he, he will have his followers. But my sense is that the, the, the American people have had enough uh, and that it's it's unlikely to see uh, the one are going to see a return much. He, he's not a hero to that many. Yes, and of course, uh, at the midterm elections in early November, most of Trump's campaign uh, or, or candidates, they did badly in this campaign. So there's a widespread view that he is political death, particularly among a lot of independents who voted Democrat at the midterm elections. Gideon Ruckman, is it fair to say 
that Donald Trump is definitely yesterday's man? Uh, I'd love to say that, but I don't, I'm not prepared to yet. I mean, I think obviously he had a bad midterms, but... You know, I could see him winning the nomination and, frankly, I could see him winning the presidency. I think the Crikey! Chan- yeah. No, I think the chances of that have clearly gone down. But the, the thing is that within the Republican Party, he still has an enormous following. The, the problem for the Republicans is that he could well win the nomination because if the vote is just Republicans, Trump has strong support. And if it's a divided field, he could get the nomination. And then the difficulty is that, as we've discovered in these midterms, he turns off a significant number of independents. Mm-hmm. But even so, if you think of the next presidential election, you know, American inflation is, is high. Biden will be 82. All American elections are close. So don't say this will never happen. I think it could happen, but I, I do think it's less likely now. And we should remember that Donald Trump's angry, blue-collar, populist backlash against globalisation, that was only a symptom of the hollowing out of the US economy because of cheap uh, Chinese manufacturing exports. Gideon Ruckman is author of The Age of the Strongmen, How the Cult of Leader Threatens Democracy Around the World. And Lawrence Freeman is author of Command, The Politics of Military Operations from Korea to Ukraine. They're in Australia this month as guests of the Lowy Institute, the prominent foreign policy think tank in Sydney. Uh, gentlemen, let's turn to Ukraine. Now, the southern city of Kherson has been liberated from Russian forces. Uh, Lawrence Freeman, how significant a moment is this in the wider war? It's a very significant moment because quite a while ago now, in early September, the Ukrainians announced this is an objective. And there were many people who doubted whether it could be achieved uh, after they announced it as an objective, uh, put in an exit, claimed this was now part of Russia. Uh, So now we've got a city which is ostensibly, as far as he's concerned, part of Russia, uh, uh, where the Russians have been checked out. And, of course, if you believe what the Russians had said, uh, well, 90% of the population of Kherson voted to be part of Russia, yet we've seen the scenes of Zelensky returning to the city in triumph. So it's a big propaganda blow. It, It opens up all of southern Ukraine, even even Crimea, and it keeps the Ukrainians with the advantage on the ground. They're the ones who are making the running militarily, uh, even though the, the Russians are doing terrible things to Ukraine as a society with their missiles uh, and rockets. And given those Ukrainian gains uh, against Russia, does that increase the prospects for an international peace treaty? Uh, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley, this is his quote just recently, We have seen the Ukrainian military fight the Russian military to a standstill. Now, what the future holds is not known with any degree of certainty, but we think there are some possibilities here for some diplomatic solution. So, in other words, uh, here's the chairman of the US Joint Chiefs of Staff saying that given Ukraine's achievements, now's the time to sit down at the negotiating table and work out a peace settlement. Gideon Ruckman. Well, it's interesting that Milley should say that because I've also heard it from, you know, European military sources. You kind of instinctively think the generals are on the belligerent side and the politicians are looking for negotiations. But actually, quite a lot of the military people say, look, helping Ukraine win the war is one thing, but we've also got to end the war and there has to be a negotiation. The difficulty is that even those who who would agree with that in principle 
don't yet see any sign that Russia is prepared to deal in any way that would be acceptable to the Ukrainians or their Western backers. The kind of minimal thing people are talking about is Russia withdrawing to the lines from where they invaded before February the 24th. And then, of course, there'd be a big question over what to do with Crimea. And you'd need some sort of clever diplomatic solution to that. Again, whether the Ukrainians would accept anything other than fully uh, taking Crimea back is is an open question. So I think people in principle in the West certainly want to see a negotiated solution. They don't really see Mm. any other way out. But there's not really a sign that it, it's it's there for the taking yet, although uh, unless Millie's seen something that we haven't seen. And if Ukrainian leverage is rising, Lawrence Freeman, wouldn't Kiev want to continue the conflict and inflict more losses on Russia in order to make that leverage even greater? Yes, I think the Ukrainian view is uh, there's no peace deal available on terms that are of interest to them. The problem everybody who wants a peace deal has is Putin because they assume that that there's an interest on his side in a deal. His problem is any deal that begins to be acceptable to the Ukrainians is clearly a defeat for him, because all these territories that he's declared part of Russia, he now has to Mm. give up. And there'll be a reckoning. People will look at the costs of this war to Russia, never mind to Ukraine, uh, and there's nothing to show for it. So I think, actually, in an odd way, it suits Putin to keep the war going rather than bringing it to a close. Do you think the Ukrainians are likely to regain all lost territory to the Russians, including the Crimean Peninsula and parts of Donbass from 2014? It's, I think the Donbass is, is a possibility. Uh, Crimea is a possibility, but it's very difficult. My view has been for some time that if, you, if you're moving in that direction, the Russian military really don't want to be pushed out in that sort of way. And they'll be the ones, I think, perhaps along the lines Gideon was suggesting, uh, of generals can see the advantage of diplomacy. Um, The the Russian military has taken absolute hammering. And uh, I think they have an interest in in a ceasefire and disengagement uh, agreement, which is separate from a peace deal. I think a peace deal which divides territory forever is is going to be a very difficult thing to agree. Uh, Disengagement is something that's more possible. Okay, but given that Russia is militarily weaker, it's diplomatically more isolated than most people had the right to expect Mm. earlier this year, does this mean, Gideon Ruckman, that Western security and intelligence services, have they just grossly exaggerated the Russian threat? Well, in a funny way, I think the intelligence services both had a triumph and... uh, uh, you know, a mistake over this. The triumph was that was was that was that they were correct that uh, that Russia was going to invade. When a lot of politicians and Russia specialists were saying, "There's no way Putin will do this." You know, it's uh, in fact the intelligence agencies saw it coming a long way out. But you're right. Like the same people who were saying he's going to invade and were correct about that, also thought generally that they would win within a week. Yeah, I think people didn't realise that the the weak nature of of Russian forces, maybe they were over-impressed, as probably Putin was himself, by the ease with which Crimea fell. It's a big chunk of territory. It went, as Putin himself said rather triumphantly afterwards, they hardly fired a shot. Uh, And Russia's intervention in Syria had been quite effective. So there were reasons people got it wrong, but they definitely got it wrong. Okay, but, but for years, though, the policy consensus in Washington, London, Brussels, was that Putin was bent on conquering Ukraine and incorporating it into a greater Russian empire, yet Russia's bogged down in Donbass. That's hardly a serious threat to the continent. Lawrence Freeman. Putin badly miscalculated. There's a question of whether we overestimated the Russians or whether 
they just did this very badly. Uh, they executed a war that they might have won, at least uh, in the first stages. I think they would always have had trouble subjugating Ukraine. Uh, that was why I, I, amongst others, didn't think it was so likely. What was surprising was just the sheer incompetence with which the military went about their business. They they were too arrogant, too cocky. The, the Ukrainians were better prepared for them. I mean, it's not just a question of overestimating the Russians, it's underestimating the Ukrainians as well. They did far better than people uh, expected to. Okay, back to ending the Ukraine war. Gideon Ruckman, many in the West believe that the best hope for ending it is to remove Putin from power. Would his exit dramatically increase the prospects for a settlement? Well, it depends what replaced him. I mean, I think, you know, we all have our kind of wish in common. Putin falls, uh, a more liberal regime comes to power, they apologise, things get back to normal, <laughs> triumph. But, I mean, it's, at first there are a lot of things to, that have to happen there, you know. <laughs> Firstly, Putin has to fall, and, and that's not inevitable. I mean, you know, Stalin died in power, Mao died in power. Mm. It's hard to get rid of a dictator who has that kind of power. Uh, And secondly, uh, it's not obvious that he would be replaced by a liberal. A lot of the forces that are complaining and arguing in Russia now are nationalists to the right of of Putin who are saying, you know, believe it or not, that Russia's been too weak, you know, crazy talk about the use of nuclear weapons or uh, crippling attacks on Western infrastructure. There are radical voices to the right of Putin Mm. as well. Do you agree with that, Lawrence Freeman? I mean, could Putin's replacement be at least as hostile and hawkish towards Ukraine and the West? Yeah, certainly. There are other possibilities too uh, of just chaos. Uh, that what happens in in Russia uh, is is marked by a lot of internecine fighting. I mean, politically, not necessarily with arms, but you've got the the, the Wagner Group making big power plays uh, for for their own Epigozin. I think. Putin has set in motion things uh, that he can't control anymore, uh, and the outcomes could be quite uh, quite brutal. You know, the fact that Putin couldn't come to the G20 it would have been too embarrassing. Everywhere Putin yeah. goes, he looks diminished, and the country looks diminished. But, but this is beyond Putin, though. I want to keep with this fundamental point, because isn't there a consensus among the Kremlin elite that a US-led policy of making Ukraine a Western bulwark on Russia's border and eventually bringing it into the Western Strategic Alliance, that would threaten Russia's security. Well, that's been the, that's been the view and the, and the argument. I think, it's, to be honest, it, a lot of it was uh, the internal protests within Ukraine, the Orange Revolution in 2004, the uh, Euromaiden in 2014. Uh, These were the things that it, it presented the real threat, what, he re- what Putin faced, which is popular movements uh, opposed to him. But frankly, if if you're now looking at uh, Ukrainian security in the future, of course you're going to be, want to be tied to the West. You're, you're, what what other options are, are, are they yeah, going but, to but, see? But, but but any Russian leader would see this as an existential threat, wouldn't they? Well, they, they they've they've created a a crisis for themselves. You get one chance at doing this sort of thing, and they've blown it. Gideon Ruckman, can you imagine any Russian leader? Forget Putin for a moment, but can you imagine any Russian leader? accepting a vibrant Ukraine that is either formally or informally part of NATO right on Russia's doorstep? 
Well, not in the current Russian discourse, no. But, you know, they have, as Lawrence has pointed out, they've, they've severely weakened themselves. So they may have to accept some things that they don't want, want to accept. I suspect, however, that actually the West and even Zelensky probably won't push for full NATO membership immediately. They'll look for some kind of alternative way of guaranteeing Ukraine's security that doesn't actually explicitly, you know, rub Russia's nose in this, what they've they've said is their red line, but achieves something of the same effect. And whether you can do that is, is really the art of creative diplomacy. Okay, final questions for both of you. Nuclear weapons. Lawrence Freeman, just assume that Russia's losses continue and Ukraine regains much of the territory it's lost to Russia. Is there a real danger that far from submitting... Russia could escalate just as, say, Japan's 1941 attack on Pearl Harbor showed. You, you've, got a, you've got a leader who's already made one stupid decision so he can make another stupid decision. But there's two points to keep in mind. First, he's used nuclear weapons from day one as a deterrent. He's made it very clear that if NATO gets actively involved, not just in supplying weapons, but with troops on the ground, uh, that is potentially uh, a situation in which nuclear weapons can be used. And it's worked. There's no no-fly zone, whatever, because of that. Second, he's escalated. I mean, what we've seen, uh, may not have escalated with nuclear weapons, but he's uh, done terrible things to uh, the Ukrainian economy and civil societies, turned the lights off and so on. Um, and the dangers are just as a reminder that once you start these sorts of campaigns and operations, uh, you can't keep them under control. Things happen that you didn't expect uh, and unintended consequences can be far greater and more important than the intended ones. Yes, but could a desperate, wounded Russia use nuclear weapons to salvage the situation? Gideon Ruckman. Well, I think, you know, in the end, it's it's Putin's decision and uh, it's very hard to get absolutely inside his mind. But one thing I would say is I've been very struck talking to Western officials, particularly in the US, how seriously they take this idea. I mean, and you can see it in their explicit diplomacy, the amount of effort they're putting into getting the Chinese, for example, to say things about don't use nuclear weapons. The Americans have taken this threat very seriously from the beginning. It doesn't mean that they think it's likely, but they know that the results of it would be catastrophic and that it would put the US in a terribly difficult position because many would say they should be uh, compelled to retaliate. Indeed, Jake Sullivan, the US national security advisor, has said that if Russia did this, there would be catastrophic consequences for Russia. So you would get the risk of escalation very, very quickly. So I don't think it's, it's likely, but it's certainly considered possible. And because it's so dangerous, it's, it's still very much at the centre of Western thinking. That was Gideon Ruckman from the Financial Times and Lawrence Freeman from the King's College London. They're in Australia this month as guests of the Lowy Institute in Sydney. Well, since the 1979 revolution, Iran's mullahs have created many victims, but few have suffered more than women. In recent months, at least two young women have died after falling into the hands of the hated morality police. In response, young Iranian women have defiantly taken off their headscarves, stomped on pictures of the Supreme Leader and championed freedom. The uprising has a simple slogan, Women, Life, Freedom. 
So will Iran's longest-running demonstrations in decades lead to real progress for Iranian women? Kylie Moore Gilbert was held in an Iranian prison for 804 days on unsubstantiated espionage charges. Her book about her ordeal is called The Uncaged Sky. Welcome back to the program, Kylie. Hey, thanks for having me. And Noz Hassani is spokesperson of the Iranian Women's Association that's based in Melbourne. Hi there, Noz. Thank you so much for having me. Now, Kylie, what's the significance of these protests? I think they're hugely significant. Not since the revolution in 1979 have we seen such a mass uprising of popular dissent on the streets in Iran. We're now entering close to our ninth week um, of this uprising. So the length of time that these protests have gone on for is also very significant. They don't seem to be uh, ebbing away anytime soon. In fact, uh, the protesters seem to be uh, just as robust in asserting their dissent to this regime on the streets now as they were in the early days of the uprising. Now, is this more significant than, say, the Green Revolution of 2009? I think it is because the Green Revolution primarily, or at least it, it started as a call for reform of the regime rather than the downfall of the regime itself. It uh, was sparked by a stolen internal authoritarian election within Iran rather than uh, calls for the entire system itself to be removed. So we've seen that Rubicon crossed with these protests. From the first 24 hours, demonstrators have called for the downfall of this regime and for the Islamic Republic to go all together and for democracy and freedom to be established for the Iranian people in its place. These protests started about two months ago, say, in mid-September in response to the death of the young lady who was killed uh, for not wearing a headscarf. Now, 60% of Iran's population are aged below 30. So, Noz, is this mass movement only about the headscarf? No, not at all. Um, it started off as a movement against the death of Masa Amini whilst in the custody of the um, so-called morality police. But the movement is one that's calling for regime change. It's nothing to do with Islam or the headscarf. It's about being able to sing on the streets of Iran and not be reprimanded. It's about being able to cast your vote and nominate for an election and not have your name or candidacy eliminated from the ballot by the supreme leader. It's about freedom, freedom of choice, freedom of movement, freedom of assembly, freedom to criticise the regime and the status quo. It's beyond just a simple piece of clothing. Well, you both have very personal stories to tell. Kylie, uh, it's been well documented that you were held in solitary confinement at, it's called the Evan Prison for 804 days, on those charges that were never substantiated. You were released two years ago this month, and that very prison has become a focal point during Iran's civil unrest. <laughs> Difficult question, but what comes to your mind as you reflect on that prison and all these protest-induced fires? Gosh, well, we don't know, for one, whether the fire in Evan Prison was induced by protesting. Right. Um, we, the regime has never released any information as to what caused the fire. We do know that when the fire broke out in Evan Prison, um, Revolutionary Guardsmen and other regime security forces actively fired with live bullets on people who were trying to escape the blaze. Mm. 
which is just horrific. And um, I think eight people or perhaps 12 died ultimately in that fire in Evan a few weeks earlier. That was very confronting for me, obviously, because I still have friends in there. Of course you do. 804 days. Yeah, I mean, I I was living in that mm. prison um, and some of my fellow cellmates and friends are still there mm. right now and we were frantic with worry as to whether they were okay or not, um, seeing images of those flames shooting high into the air and hearing gunshots um, and, and projectiles being fired into the blaze was frightening and I know that the family members of the Iranian political prisoners there were massing on the streets outside the prison. It was a huge, um, you know, 48-hour-long standoff there And it doesn't surprise me because Evin, you know, it's known as Evin University. It's the home of political prisoners in Iran. Mm. Um, Anyone of any note who voices dissent to the regime is thrown into Evin prison. And it's been that way since the revolution of 79. So that the the prison would become a focal point doesn't surprise me at all. Noz, this doesn't surprise you, obviously. You've frequently spoken out against the Iranian regime for its human rights abuses And for your pains, you and family, friends, you've been targeted by Iranian agents. Tell us more. We have uh, friends and family who live in Iran and um, because of the fact that they communicate with my father, they have been arrested and they have been taken away. My dad's cousin was imprisoned in Iran two years ago for a few months and after he was released, his son contacted my dad and said, please don't contact my father. Don't communicate with him because you're outspoken and for that reason that he was arrested and he was subject to torture in prison. And uh, there are friends and family that we're very concerned about because of the fact that they have communicated with us. Uh, My uncle and uh, other members of my family in Iran have been arrested, taken away for questioning, held for days and questioned about our political activities here in Australia. And they're um, told things like, we know what time your nieces come home from university or from work. We know what car your sister-in-law drives. And immediately after comments like that, our family cars were targeted, bolts were removed from the tyres, and there was one occasion where my parents didn't know this and they uh, jumped into the car and they drove the car while it was unroadworthy and bolts had been removed and the car had been tampered with and they almost got got into an accident. It goes beyond um, those acts of sabotage. I mean, we have agents of the regime um, who monitor us here in Australia. I've spoken at protests in the past and photos have been taken of me and published on the website of the founder of the Revolutionary Guards, Mohsen Rezoi. There's an image of me um, that was taken in 2007 and um, it was accompanied by a translated article that appeared on The Australian in relation to um, students, Iranian students in Australia acting as spies for the Iranian regime. I mean, make it very clear that the Iranian state and, and its uh, security forces are seeking retribution against critics of the regime. And this is especially happening, obviously, in Iran. The Washington Post just recently reported that many families fear sending their children to school, kind of what you're experiencing. They're afraid that they could be surveilled, beaten, detained or disappeared. So the question here is, Kylie, given your moderately upbeat feeling about this revolution being so significant, doesn't the regime's response here suggest real difficulties ahead for the protesters? I think it also suggests weakness on the part of the regime. If They fear school students to that extent (laughs) that they are actively targeting high school kids 
in their abilities to repress this protest movement. I think that says volumes about the society-wide level of dissent that you now have in Iran and the fact that, you know, unfortunately we've seen 15, 16-year-old teenagers shot dead in the streets for protesting. We've, we've seen amazing footage of teenage girls in school uniforms shouting down Revolutionary Guard commanders and forcing people who'd come to their school to give lectures on morality and, you know, female um, behaviour, forcing them out of the auditorium and etc. So school kids are very much on the front lines here and the fact that the regime would stoop so low as to target them I think is indicative of their weakness. Yeah, but isn't there a flip side here? I mean, you mentioned the protests being led by women and girls. Given that Iran's security forces include many conscripts, Noz, who have mothers, sisters, daughters of their own, does this make it harder for the Tehran regime to crack down on the protests? The Revolutionary Guards and the regime's suppressive forces are being paid by the regime to conduct atrocities against the Iranian people. I don't think it matters whether they have mothers or whether they have sisters or children or nieces because they are savage and we're seeing that. They show no mercy to anyone who dares defy the regime. And there are young people, women, children, men fighting on the streets, trying to take back their country and trying to create change. And they're calling out for regime change. And they're being brutalised. They're being raped in the regime's prisons. They're being subject to mass murder. And ethnic and religious minorities are having, you know, they're being killed en masse. It's state-sanctioned murder. And it doesn't matter whether or not the Revolutionary Guards have mothers or sisters or wives because their goal and their focus is to buy time for the regime and ensure that the regime remains where it is. My guest is Noz Hosseini. She's a spokesperson of the Iranian Women's Association based in Melbourne. And I'm also joined by Kylie Moore-Gilbert. She's author of the Uncaged Sky, and that's about her ordeal in an Iranian prison for 804 days. Kylie, what more can Canberra and indeed the broader West do to support this movement against the Iranian regime? I think there's a lot more that Canberra and the Australian government specifically can do when you look at what the broader West is doing right now. Is it enough? We can debate that, but it's certainly a hell of a lot more than what Australia is doing. Australia is lagging behind our Western allies in sanctioning Iranian officials responsible for this violence and this brutal crackdown. We should be also sanctioning the Revolutionary Guard Corps themselves as a terror organisation. Mm. We should be cracking down on Iranian regime infiltrators on our territory here in Australia, as well as looking at Iranian regime money laundering and, and movement of corrupt and illicit funds into Australia. The Iranian community has been talking about this for years, but very little has been done about how you, it. How do you account for the failure of the Australian government to adopt a tougher position towards Tehran? There are a number of reasons that I understand to be behind our very tepid response. One of them is motivated by a reluctance to upset diplomatic relations because of security concerns around our embassy, which plays a very important role for us and our allies in the region, particularly in terms of intelligence gathering. And the other is hostage diplomacy and mm. whether or not Iran is holding Australian citizens hostage currently and if that has had an impact on our foreign policy approach. Okay, Noz, does this mean that uh, regime change, is that the only option to deliver real change for Iranian women? 
Absolutely. Uh, regime change will enable there to be widespread change to the lives of women, children, men, members of the LGBTQIA plus community, religious and ethnic minorities. The only option is regime change. People are fighting and paying the price with their lives all for regime change. They don't want reform. They don't want the regime to remain and consolidate its power and strengthen its base by instituting reforms. They've had 43 years to make changes. They've had 43 years to conduct free and open elections and allow the people to cast a vote. They've had many opportunities to let the people decide, but they don't have a mandate to govern and they don't have a mandate to institute reforms. Reforms mm. aren't going to change anything in Iran. Regime change is the only solution. Okay, but no one in Washington in 2022 is seriously talking about regime change. The circumstances have changed in, in the context of uh, all the other problems that America has to deal with. So it's essentially a do-it-yourself enterprise, isn't it, uh, Kylie? I mean, how on earth do we help promote an internal revolution from outside? I, I would say that Washington's involvement would be unwelcome by the Iranian people in this matter. You know, the history of American interference in the Middle East mm. is not a particularly pleasant one. Mm. And um, whilst... Iranian people want support from abroad and they particularly want the Americans, the Canadians, the EU, Australia and elsewhere to sanction the perpetrators and to do everything they can within international fora like the UN to hold Iran to account. This is the Iranian people's revolution and only the Iranian people will determine the outcome. There is no call for any sort of external intervention in this revolution. Okay, where do things stand then with the Iranian deal that President Donald Trump scrapped several years ago? The Biden administration has been very keen to renew that nuclear deal with Tehran. Nos? The Iranian people don't want to see the US government reviving the nuclear deal with the Iranian regime. They want the Western governments to hold the Iranian regime to task and hold them accountable for the human rights violations that have happened over the last nine weeks and for the human rights violations that predate Maso's murder in custody. The regime has benefited from the policy of appeasement that's characterised the relationship between the West and the Iranian regime. And uh, the only way that the Iranian regime is going to be held account to account is if it's isolated, is if uh, the diplomatic negotiations cease, if the placation of the Iranian regime ceases. Kylie, Noss says that if the US and the Europeans recommit to a nuclear deal with Tehran, that'll just ease the economic pressure on the mullahs. Is that your line too? I think the JCPOA is dead. And the fact that the Americans have not been talking about it at all lately mm. um, and seem to have rhetorically at least backed away from it during the period of protests shows you that even they recognise that this thing is done and dusted. The Iranian people don't want a JCPOA, but also it's not in our interest anymore either. The I Iranian regime has demonstrated that it is not a good faith actor. Doing a deal that would release hundreds of billions in frozen assets and economic opportunity for a regime that is quite literally shooting its young people on the streets in their dozens for simply speaking up and using their voices to protest is no longer feasible or, pa or palatable, not for the American people, the European people, people who are parties to the deal, and certainly not for the Iranian people. When I was in prison, I, I spoke at length about the nuclear deal with a lot of political prisoners. 
I, I don't think I found one who was an enthusiastic supporter. In fact, I found many who said, sanction the hell out of this regime. We don't want the sanctions removed. That is the only way we're going to get rid of these guys. Well, Kylie and Nost, you both have very moving stories to tell about your ordeals with the Iranian regime. Women all across Iran and indeed the world are with you all the way. Thanks so much for being on the program. Thank you so much. Thank you. That was Kylie Moore-Gilbert, author of The Uncaged Sky, My 804 Days in an Iranian Prison, and Noz Hosseini from the Iranian Women's Association. Well, you've no doubt heard about China's Belt and Road Initiative. It's colossal in scale, cost and ambition, And so far, China has consistently outperformed the US and its allies in securing and then building big infrastructure projects across the developing world. Now, to consider why this matters strategically and how the West might counter China's Belt and Road Initiative, I'm joined by Hayley Channer. She's a senior policy fellow at the Perth US Asia Centre. Hi there, Hayley. Welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me, Tom. Now, this week you launched a report on the responses to Belt and Road. It's titled, Can Rubber Meet the Road? It's with the Hudson Institute. Let's start with the size and the scope of the Belt and Road. It began in 2013, not quite a decade old. Just how big has it become? China's Belt and Road Initiative is colossal in scale and China's been known for major infrastructure projects throughout its history. Everybody knows of the Great Wall of China. And in more recent years, China's been known for building artificial islands in the South China Sea. So in actually establishing the Belt and Road Initiative back in 2013, China was capitalising on its skill in infrastructure and exporting some of its excess domestic capacity. And it's really turned this skill into a tool of foreign influence. And that's what we see with the Belt and Road, which spans all the way from Europe, all across the Middle East and South and Southeast Asia down to the Pacific. And in the first half of this year alone, China spent $30 billion on infrastructure projects globally. So even though we've had COVID and we've had economic downturns, it is still building things worldwide. Yes, so it's, it's shelled out, what you say, $30 billion on Belt and Road Initiative projects across the globe. We've got 147 countries. Now, I suppose the question here is why have developing countries overwhelmingly turned to China for their infrastructure needs, given that they're going to be in debt? Well, that's a great question. Uh, the key answer is because China can build things very quickly and it can build them very cheaply. So if you can imagine you're a developing country, you're the leader of a developing country, and you might only have a couple of years in office and your country is looking for critical infrastructure. Now I'm talking about roads and railways, um, just electricity grids to keep the lights on at night the basics to actually have a functioning country and a stronger economy. You're going to be looking for international partners who can help you achieve that goal within your term of government so that you get re-elected. So even though there are large multilateral groups like the World Bank or the Asian Development Bank, instead of those multilateral groups, developing countries are turning to China because China can build things quickly. So China can have an agreement with you in as little as three months 
and start building straight away so it can get its shovels out and actually build projects. And within a year, you could have a new bridge or a new highway. In contrast, if developing countries were to reach out to the United States or to US allies like Australia or Japan, it takes us a very long time to build things. And sometimes we actually take a very long time to consider projects and then we might even decline building those projects. So you can see how it can build frustration within developing countries and maybe also in the private sector who are wanting to get these projects underway. And that's really why I called my report Can Rubber Meet the Road is because for about a decade, we've been trying to chase China's lead around the region. And in the meantime, we're just kind of spinning our wheels trying to catch up. Well, how concerned should the West be given all this? Personally, I actually believe that the threat of China's Belt and Road Initiative has been overstated. In the United States, for example, you'll get interest and attention to build overseas infrastructure if it's to counter China's Belt and Road specifically. But actually, the jury's out in terms of how strategic and how well executed China's Belt and Road Initiative is. The reason for that is because China's actually had a patchy record in terms of increasing positive influence in the countries that it's built infrastructure. So some people listening might be aware of attacks on Chinese workers in some developing countries. That's because, you know, China is only using its own labourers to build these projects and it's not using any local labour and it's not frequenting any local businesses. So there is some resentment in developing countries about China's Belt and Road. The reason, though, that countries like Australia, the US, Japan and other like-minded countries should be concerned is because, first of all, China could use this infrastructure for so-called dual-use purposes. That's infrastructure that has both civilian and military applications. So it could be using ports or airfields for its own People's Liberation Army. And it can also be influencing countries to gain more uh, leverage within multilateral groups. So that's one reason. Um, another reason we should be concerned is because the way the Belt and Road is delivered often fosters corruption and also undermines good governance in these countries. And a final concern is the fact that a lot of the way the projects are delivered by China are really poor quality and they're bad for the environment. So there's a number of reasons why we should be concerned and why we should be trying to provide a better alternative. Okay, so this all helps explain why the West is in trying to improve its offer for infrastructure projects and compete with the Belt and Road. Now, it seems, um, Hayley, that, that infrastructure aid and development, that's been asked to carry and deliver a lot more than just new roads and rail and dams. Is there an expectation from Western donors that liberal values and environmental concerns should be part of the deal? Yes, actually, that's part of the reason why the Western offering isn't as attractive as what China is offering. China will come in and basically say, what would you like us to build? Whereas countries like the US, Australia and Japan have a lot of preconditions and we're trying to achieve a lot of things at once. So, for instance, uh, we want countries to adopt green practices and have sustainable infrastructure. We want gender equality in these countries and the infrastructure to match. We want it to be the highest quality infrastructure in the world. And we want our infrastructures to stamp out corruption and poor governance in developing countries. Now, all of these are great pursuits, but they're more expensive 
they take longer. And in another way, they're also exporting these liberal democratic values to countries that don't share these values. So in a number of ways, we're making our business offering um, really prohibitive and less attractive to what China is offering. And that partly explains why, even though developing countries know they could be saddled with higher interest debt under China, uh, that's why they continue to turn to China for their infrastructure needs. Obviously, China doesn't place much emphasis on things like gender equality and human rights generally, so that gives them an opening. How does this all play out in our neighbourhood, Hallie? So just take, for example, the, the Solomon Islands. Now, Beijing's play, made a play for huge investment in the Solomon Islands. How might Canberra counter China's presence and offer there, the Solomon Islands? So the Pacific Islands are an extremely complex part of the Indo-Pacific region and different countries within the Pacific are completely different. So it's not a one-size-fits-all approach to each of the different countries. Solomon Islands is a particularly interesting case and people will remember when there were uh, violent protests in Solomon Islands at the end of last year when Solomon Islands changed recognition of Taiwan to China. Mm-hmm. What Australia has been doing recently in Solomon Islands is a charm offensive where we've seen our foreign minister, Penny Wong, make 12 visits to the Pacific since May. So she's averaging about twice a month, which is just incredible. So part of it is we're trying to charm the region and remind them of our very longstanding historic commitment. And the United States has been trying to do the same thing. So President Biden actually had 12 Pacific Island leaders for the very first time, visit the White House a couple of weeks ago. So the US has its own charm offensive. So relationships in the Pacific really matter. And we need to invest more in our genuine people-to-people links and have a less transactional approach to the Pacific. So if China is engaging in a transactional approach, which I think it very much is, Over time, Pacific Island nations will really care about the fact that Australia, the US and other countries care about them, not just because they can be some strategic pawn in this game, but because we care about building up their development and their options in the region. And that will make a difference. Yeah. What about PNG? Because clearly, again, work needs to be done there, countering China's interest and presence. PNG, Hayley? Again, Papua New Guinea is an extremely difficult country to work in because there's corruption there, but also it's also a very tribal country. And Australia's been working with the US, Japan and New Zealand, actually, to deliver an electrification program in PNG that's gone horribly wrong. So, yes, it's a difficult country to work with. And in the past, China has built major projects for elites in PNG, including this multi-million dollar convention centre and a six-lane highway, uh, which is literally a highway to nowhere. It was built under APEC. So I think, you know, there's definitely ways that China's been making inroads, but we can't lower ourselves to China's level. We do need to actually demonstrate the value of our offering. So some of these major infrastructure projects China's built can become white elephants, where they're really expensive for Papua New Guinea to maintain, and the government feels like, they're, you know, it's a chain around their neck. So what we need to do is build things better, smarter, but also have um, deeper engagement on a people-to-people level with Papua New Guinea. But we definitely need to tailor our approaches to individual Pacific Island countries and not just have a blanket approach because they are so different. You mentioned Australia's investments in uh, the Pacific just generally. 
And that uh, reminds me of Canberra's big investment in telecommunications infrastructure in the Pacific region. What can you tell us about that? Because that has come with a hefty price tag, right? That's right, Tom. So earlier this year, the Australian government spent $1.3 billion in public funds to purchase a telecommunications provider that operates in the Pacific. It's called Digicel. And we partnered with Telstra for the takeover. Why did we purchase Digicel? Well, earlier, Digicel had approached us saying that a Chinese company was interested in acquiring it and asking us to do some of the due diligence. Now, the Australian government took the decision that it was actually in our strategic interest to purchase Digicel because we were worried China might use that telecommunications company for data collection in places like Papua New Guinea uh, or also for espionage. So we spent a lot of public money on buying that and we can't continue with that kind of whack-a-mole approach where every time China wants to buy something, we just step in and we pick up the price tag. So part of what I uh, say in my report is that we need a forecasting unit for the Pacific. Basically, the idea here is that we get out in front of offers from China and we make the offers based off of a strategic analysis and other data and analytics that we crunch so the idea would be we partner with the United States, Japan, maybe also New Zealand to make this forecasting unit a reality because with the cost of living going up in Australia, you know, we've just seen the federal budget come out ourselves, we really can't continue the kind of whack-a-mole approach. And so I think a forecasting unit could really address that challenge. Hayley, great to have you back on RN. Thanks so much for having me, Tom. That was Hayley Channer. She's Senior Policy Fellow at the Perth US Asia Centre. And you can find a copy of the report published this week in partnership with the Hudson Institute on the Perth US Asia Centre and we'll put a link on our website. Well that's it for the show and remember if you want to listen to any of this program or to previous ones just go to the ABC Listen app and follow the prompts to Between the Lines. That's the podcast which you can download for free. I'm Tom Switzer until next time bye for now. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.